Well, good morning. My name is Aubrey. I'm one of the pastors here. If you brought along a copy of the Bible, find our Old Testament reading this morning, uh, which starts at the end of Genesis chapter 39 and goes through all of Genesis chapter 40. So this passage, we've been going through Joseph's life, and this part of his life is the lowest moment in his life. It's what in the Christian tradition we've called the dark night of the soul. Now remember, Joseph grew up as this gifted, talented, favored child of a large, wealthy, successful family. His mom was a supermodel and Joseph inherited her extraordinary good looks and he was a leader. He was a leader who rose to the top of whatever group he ended, landed in. And these gifts, these gifts of leadership and intelligence and beauty, they weren't just superficial. They went all the way down. His character was like this. And yet, when we look at Joseph and we see all of this favor and all of this success and all of these gifts, that's only part of the story of Joseph's life. There's another part to his life. The other part is that his brothers hated him. And um, they were so jealous of him that they kidnapped him. And they were about to murder him when at the last minute they decided they'd rather make money. And so they sold him in slavery to some traders that were coming through uh, who took him and hauled him thousands of miles away until... uh, They got to Egypt, and then they sold him again in Egypt in slavery. And so for 13 years of his life, Joseph, who had all of these gifts and all of this talent and all of this success, for 13 years of his life, starting shortly after he was 17 years old, he was probably 17 or 18 or 19 when he got sold into slavery. For the next 13 years of his life, he was either a slave or a prisoner. And so on the one hand, think about this. Joseph had God, and God had Joseph. And like the very beginning of our reading this morning, Genesis chapter 39, verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph, and he showed him steadfast, loyal love, and he gave him favor. So that, that's one truth about Joseph. But on the other hand, notice in chapter 40, verse 15, I have been stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here, I, and here also I've done nothing that they should put me into this pit, into prison. So these two things are true in, in Joseph's life. At the same time, he's got all of this grace, all of this favor, all of this success, all of this talent and beauty and intelligence and um, incredible skills and leadership success. And on the other hand, he's a slave. And he's in prison. Here he is in prison for a crime he did not commit. The reason Joseph is in prison is because he was the wrong color in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's a story that is not uncommon. So here he is. Falsely accused. Falsely convicted. Unjustly jailed. And he's been there for several years. And this is the moment where the story that Rachel read to us plays out. 
God is with Joseph. He gives him favor. He rises up in the ranks of the prison and he becomes kind of the the prisoner in charge of all the prisoners. And one day, this prison gets a couple of VIP guests. They get two very special prisoners. They get the cupbearer of Pharaoh and the baker. Now, that might not be, you know, the grand hoo-ha of leadership positions in our world today. But remember, this is thousands of years old. Another place, another time, another culture. And in that place, in that time, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker had power and they had influence. These were very powerful, influential men. But they were playing in a high-stakes game. And they were very close to the king of all of Egypt, which gave you lots of power and lots of danger. And one day, they got on the bad side of all of that. They did something, it says in chapter 40, verse 1, they committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. We don't know what it was. It doesn't tell us. And so he gets angry. And verse 3, he puts them in prison. One morning, Joseph goes to check on these VIP prisoners, and they look distraught. Like, more distraught than you look like when you're, you might be dying soon. So something was going on. They look at, he looks at them and he says, what's wrong, guys? And, at the, and then they say to him, well, we had these dreams. And we don't know what they mean. And that's a huge deal. It's a huge deal because they had not yet encountered Freud and psychoanalytic views of dreams. They had not let, let developed our sophisticated scientific ideas that pepperoni pizza can mess with you at night when you're sleeping. So they didn't know this stuff. All they knew in Egypt at this time was dreams were a big deal. Huge deal. And um, they had some dreams, and they used to be able to handle their dreams because they had money, and they had wealth, and they had power, and they had influence, and they could go and find the people who had gone to school and were specialists, and they knew how to tell you what your dreams meant. But they were cut off from that, and so they were scared to death. And Joseph said, verse 8, hey guys, don't worry about all those specialists out there. I know the specialist. God knows what your dreams mean. So tell me, and we'll ask him for help. So, they, so first, the cupbearer says, well, here is my dream. It's this weird kind of dream. And Joseph says, look, God's telling me what that dream means. It means that in three days, your head is going to be lifted up, which is kind of like you're really sad, and Pharaoh's going to come along and lift up your head. And you're going to, like, be happy again, and you're going to get your old job back, and life is going to be hunky-dory. And um, he says, but here's the deal, Mr. Cupbearer, verse 14. When that happens... I only ask one thing, remember me. Because that's the thing that has not happened to Joseph. I mean, he's a decade in to being forgotten about. This is the cry of his life right now. And those of us who have lived on the positive side of power, who don't get pulled over indiscriminately, we don't often worry about being remembered. But you can get why he wants to be remembered. That's the one thing missing in his life. And he says, please do me the kindness to mention to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews and here I've done nothing and they've put me in this pit. So he's saying, look, twice I've been falsely like taken advantage of. I've been treated unjustly and it's, it's the end of me. I, I need somebody to do two things. Remember me and be kind to me. The cupbearer says, sure, absolutely. Well, the baker sees all this going on. He's like, I had a dream too. 
And um, he tells the dream, and Joseph says the same thing to him. In three days, the king's going to lift up your head. And then he adds, off your body. It's hilarious. Um, in Hebrew, it's the first decapitation in the body. And actually, our Bibles are really wussy translations. The next phrase is, and then impale you. Like, cram your body down on a sharp stick. So not only are they going to lift your head off of you, they're going to expose your body forever. It's, it's the most brutal kind of like thing you can imagine. So the baker was like, well, well. He said the things you would say at that moment. And so, um, or some of you, not your mothers, but some of you. And sure enough, three days later, they're both escorted out of the prison, and both of them, their heads are lifted up, but in two quite very different ways. And then we get to the last line of the entire story, chapter 40, verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And what will be helpful for us to see this morning is the way this story is held together by its beginning and its end. At the beginning it says, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, um, faithful love. I will not forget you, love. But at the same time it says that he's forgotten. And this is, this is the important thing for us today. There are times in our life where the presence of God and the love of God and the faithfulness of God and the mercy of God are there and we cannot see them. And we cannot feel them and we don't sense them. And when that happens, when you have devastating suffering and on top of it is laid the absence of God, on top of your suffering, there also occurs no sense of God's presence. When those two things happen to the follower of God, Christianity has called that the dark night of the soul. It's profound suffering in which, in addition to the suffering, there is a feeling of the absence of God, and yet God is present and deeply at work. Now over the last three weeks, we've, we've been going through Joseph's life and I've been showing you how Joseph is a foreshadowing. He's an outline of Jesus. He's Jesus in kind of a shadow form. That is the case in Genesis chapter 40. At the heart of the New Testament is the cross. And in our gospel reading this morning, we saw Jesus overwhelmed by despair. And on top of his physical suffering, and on top of his social um, shame, on top of all of that brutal suffering was a sense of the absence of God. He cries out, not, ow, it hurts. But in the middle of all that pain, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because we the church, are the body of Christ? When you read this kind of stuff in the Bible and it's showing you that's what it's going to be like for Jesus, you keep following the arc of that trajectory and we are the body of Christ. And so what is true of Jesus is true of the church. And because if you are a Christian, what is true of Jesus is true of the church will be true of you. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. 
It is a grace-filled thing when mindful of God, you endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a grace-filled experience in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. To what? To the dark night of the soul. To the suffering and a feeling of the absence of God. You're called to that because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example That you might follow in his steps. We like to follow in Jesus' steps of kindness and gentleness. We talk about what would Jesus do. He would be patient. He would be loving. Here's another way that we are called at moments in our life to follow in his steps. Into the valley of the shadow of death. Now I'm not saying we should go looking for this kind of experience. Absolutely not. It would be a massive mistake to romanticize suffering. Yes, there are gifts in the wounds. And yes, in deep suffering, there is incredible potential for growth and the opportunity to discover more deeply than ever the wonder of who you are and who God is. And yet, make no mistake about it, in this kind of suffering, there is the enormous potential for your disaster. It is possible to drown in the undertow. To die a cruel spiritual death from which you are not resurrected. It is possible in this kind of suffering to be swallowed up by a beast and devoured in the darkness of its belly. And we should never romanticize it. We should never look for it. And we definitely should never ask for it. But when it happens, it is important to have read the Bible. And to have some sense of the landscape. Of how this thing can play out. So I'm going to give you six characteristics that that are helpful to know about the dark night of the soul. Some of you need this for right now. Some of you are going to need this for next week. Some of you maybe 20 years from now. Some of you maybe never. Six characteristics of the dark night of the soul. That if you are a Christian or if you become a Christian at some point there's a strong chance you will walk into this valley. First of all, there are different ways to get into this valley. There are different entrances into the dark night of the soul. For example, the book of Job. It's a book in the Bible that lets us enter in the story of a wise man who fears the Lord and has been wonderfully blessed and then he's hit with catastrophe after catastrophe, grief beyond measure, bereavement, a complete loss of his wealth and his status and, and then suddenly his health, extraordinary physical pain through disease and bodily suffering. That's one way some people at some moment in their life enter into the dark night of the soul. Well, then there's the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's a total different angle of entry into this type of suffering. The lead character is a guy we call Koheleth. He never loses his stuff. He never has lots of death around him. In fact, through the suffering of his life, he keeps getting promoted. He keeps getting richer and more successful. And in the middle of all that, he descends into a nightmare. But his suffering is mental. He gets overwhelmed with hopelessness. He keeps looking at life and asking, what's the purpose? 
So he's the kind of guy that goes from success to success to success, but all along the way, it's hollow. And for him, as he's going through this, this suffering, this mental suffering, he can find no way out of it. A third example in the Bible of the dark night of the soul is Joseph. His angle of entry into it is repeated abuse and injustice and being forgotten. Three different ways of entering into a darkness, a deep and profound suffering. And while going through it, added on top of it, layered onto it, is the experience Jesus went through on the cross. The inability to sense God. In the words of St. John of the Cross, who wrote a lot about this. Quote, the soul feels itself to be perishing and melting away. And in the presence and sight of its miseries, it endures a cruel spiritual death. Some of you have felt this. You felt this kind of abandonment by God. And my first point is that for one person this happens through pain and suffering. Another person goes through pain and suffering and doesn't enter into the dark night of the soul. It just stinks. They're just suffering and it hurts and they wish they can get out of it. But it's never layered on top with the sense of the abandonment of God. Another person, they lose all their wealth and their status and that sends them sailing into the abyss. And for another one, it's an intellectually devastating season of doubt. And for another person it's injustice and in all these types of sufferings there are Christians who go through it and everything's fine it's just like universal suffering it's a thing we all share in common but other times other people go through it and for no weakness of their own all the wheels come off and they can't find God number two when it comes to the dark night of the soul another thing is it is incredibly lonely here's what I mean whether you're like Job and you're overwhelmed with grief and agony and the destruction of your life. Or you're like Koheleth and your suffering is an intellectual kind of darkness. Or you're like Joseph and you're going through injustice. Whichever path gets you to hell. There are common elements that you will share with other people who have tread that path before. But at the end of the day, when it comes to this kind of truly deep, truly profound, truly life and soul threatening darkness, at the end of the day, you are all alone and nobody can get into you. And some of you have experienced this like when, when somebody you love dies and you're stopped at a stoplight and everybody's just living their life and you want to scream out. Don't you know what's happened? And you feel in that moment the way darkness and grief imprisons you from the rest of humanity. Think of Joseph sitting in prison in the last line. The chief cupbearer did not remember him, but forgot him. This kind of suffering, the dark night of the soul, is a solitary experience. Try as you might to connect with others. Deep suffering closes us off and locks us in to an unrelatable place. Even somebody else who's gone through the same thing, they come and they try to give you advice and it just rings hollow. That's another serious part of this kind of suffering. And look, if you're ever bumping into somebody who's going through this, it's really bad to say to them, I know what you're going through. 
Number three, deep suffering is downright messy and disorienting. Remember this, we're talking about not your average suffering. We're talking about when there is an eclipse of God. We're talking about when the Christian goes through utter darkness and they cannot find God. And so think of it like being out on the ocean and suddenly no more stars to navigate by. There are moments in this kind of suffering when all of the familiar markers no longer communicate. When the Bible no longer gives you any sense of what God is up to. When worship no longer gives you any help of God's nearness. When your friend's biblical counsel no longer has anything to do with what you're going through. And all of those old things that used to orient you. Worshiping God, praying to God, reading the Bible, being around other Christians. When all of the old familiar landscape markers are silent. In the book of Ecclesiastes, over and over, Kohelet knows the truth about God. He says things about God that are absolutely true. He stands up and says the creed. And then right after it, he blasphemes. Job, when all of his suffering starts, he makes this amazing confession of faith. Right, all of his kids have just been killed. All of his wealth has just been destroyed. He stands up after this incredibly terrible set of experiences. And in Job chapter 1 verse 21, he says... Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we look at that, and we're like, holy cow. What a tremendous way of trusting God on the worst day of your life. And then for the next 41 chapters, we get a different Job. His wife tells him that he should just curse God and commit suicide. And his friends arrive, and the first thing they do is the smartest thing they do. They don't say anything for seven days. But then they start talking, and they start accusing him of all kinds of things that he didn't do that must have caused his suffering. And then they begin to treat him as a scapegoat for all their guilt and all their issues. And Job begins to cuss and to curse the day he was born and to long and beg for death. And the book of Job just goes on and on. Reading it is like living it. It's chapter after chapter after chapter. And it's like this reading process becomes a very experience of the endless anger and despair and pain. And it takes Job 41 chapters before he can get back to his starting point of faith. My point is... In the midst of this kind of suffering, by its very nature, we do not know what God is doing. And everything we thought we knew about God is blown apart. And it becomes impossible for us to discern where God is. That's what a dark night of the soul. It's when darkness descends between you and God. And like Jesus, all you can say of God is, why have you forsaken me? Or Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? All day? How long, God? Number four. The fourth thing about this kind of suffering is that it is uncontrollable. What I mean is, there's no way out. There's no right thing you can do to get out of it. There is no exit path. Praying harder won't fix it. Going to church more won't fix it. All the landmarks have been stripped away. 
We're left naked and in pain and completely at a loss as to what to think or do for Job, his wife, and his friends who were normally so helpful couldn't help him anymore. And in Ecclesiastes for Koheleth, working hard and keeping busy didn't get him out of it. And his mind that had been so reliable, so sharp, so powerfully intellectual, his mind didn't help him. He couldn't figure it out. And Joseph, no matter how good he was, no matter how faithful to God he was, no matter how true and kind and empathetic to people he was, he couldn't get a break. This type of suffering is protracted. It goes on and on. And there is nothing you can do to make it stop. There's nothing you can do to figure it out, to get rid of the pain. Number five, this suffering really is filled with grace, relentless grace. Remember Joseph in prison? We're told both on the one hand, the Lord was with him, showed him steadfast love and gave him favor. And we're also told he's forgotten. This is hard for us to think of as grace. We like Caleb grace. We like grace that you can feel. Grace that makes the hairs on your arm stand up. We like the kind of grace that um, makes you cry. We like the kind of grace that, is the, that, that means we feel God. But what we're learning in the story of Joseph, what we're told over and over is that God was with him. Not that he felt God or saw God or sensed God or even knew God. God was there though. But he was darkened out. He couldn't see him. And we see this also in Ecclesiastes. And we see this also in the book of Job. And it can be hard for us to think of grace in this kind of hard-edged, tough, ruthless way. And so when it comes to the dark night of the soul, when you are in a devastating suffering and like Jesus, you cannot find the Father. Remember this verse. Memorize it from Genesis 39, 21. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor. What I'm saying is that it is critical when we're in the darkest places to like 1 Peter says, it's critical that we're mindful of God even when we can't feel God or see God, or know what God is up to. That we're mindful of him. That in those moments, we know he's at work. And here's the catch. We need to know he's at work, even when we do not know what he's doing. See, some people like to come into your life when you're really suffering and say stuff like, we need to find out what God is doing here. Bulloney. Because it's of the nature of the dark night of the soul that you can't. So that's sort of like saying to a blind person, well, we need to get you to see. No, that's the problem. Don't pile it on them by saying, oh, the, the way out of this is to see. No, that's not the way out of this. There is no way out of this. This, the thing this is, is that you can't know what God is doing. You can't know where God is. What you're doing is you're sitting in that very dark place and you have to come to such a knowledge. God is at work. I don't know where. I cannot feel him. But I cling to the fact that he is at work. And number six. The sixth thing about the dark night of the soul is that in those dark places, 
God is going for the bullseye. He's going for the jugular. You see, all of us are more in need of a healing than we imagine. Here's how I think it works. I think very typic, very often, the thing that brings a person to God becomes the problem. Can you, I mean, can you imagine early in Joseph's life? He's the one having dreams. He's getting all of this favor and all of this success. It's sort of like people who, when you first fall in love with Jesus, you love him because he forgives you. And you love him for his nearness. And, and you're like this little giddy little teenager in love. And it's all gift. And everywhere you turn, there's God and there's God's goodness and there's God's greatness. And then one day you enter into a place where all of those very things you used to know with God are gone. And you cannot feel forgiveness and you cannot see his nearness. And, you, and, and the very thing that took you to God gets taken away. I think this is about a spiritual developmental kind of thing. I think that the very things that take us to God are because God condescends and meets us where we are. But then there comes a moment where he has to purge us of those very things so that we can grow up. He's going for the bullseye. He's going for the jugular. And if we are generous enough to allow the Lord full freedom to transform us, his scalpel must cut deep into the center of our soul. So there we have it. Six characteristics of the pit Joseph was in. And by its very nature, this kind of suffering is not something we can control. We cannot control when it starts. We can't control how long it lasts. There's no spiritual judo to get out of it. But as we see in Joseph's life, we are reminded... God is in control and he is at work in those experiences and his work is so deep we can't feel it. It's almost in my mind like the surgeon, the anesthesiologist has to put you to sleep so that the deepest work can happen and you're incapable of feeling it. But it's there. It's happening. And all we can do, all you can do in the dark night is wait. That's the only thing a person can do. Is wait. Now I'm not talking about a passive waiting. Jerry Sitzer um, went through utter tragedy. Uh, wife and children killed in a car wreck. Die in his arms as he waits like an hour for the ambulance to get there. I think his mother-in-law was killed too. And he enters into a dark night of the soul. He writes this amazing book. Quote, since I knew that darkness was inevitable and unavoidable, I decided from that point on to walk into the darkness rather than to try to outrun it, like to solve it. I decided to let my experience of loss take me on a journey wherever it would lead. So instead of resisting the suffering, he went with it. I decided to allow myself to be transformed by my suffering rather than to think I could somehow understand it or solve it or avoid it. I chose to turn toward the pain, however faultingly, falteringly, and to yield to the loss, though I had no idea at the time what that would mean. 
And as we'll see with Joseph one day, he will look back and he will see that God's grace was there. But he couldn't see it at the time. The greatest gifts come in the wounds. And in this kind of suffering, there is a grace disguised. Let's pray.